1: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
2: As Jonas you know, ola always said, take it away. For me, Eurovision is much more than just a job, but it's part of me. Janis, let me say,
3: we were your first ever Eurovision interview way back in January. <laughs> I remember, I remember. So, Gisli Baldarsson, Iceland's commentator, welcome
2: to the Euro Thank you very much, and thank you for the Eurotrip. I've been listening to you.
3: Being face-to-face, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> I was going to say,
2: your beautiful face. <laughs> I was like, it's well,
3: though. Cute. We were talking on the phone. Yes. Do you want to have a hug? Yes, please. Yeah, that would be great. Cornelia Jacobs, congratulations. Thank you. Give me a
2: hug. Hi there. My name is Martin Osterdal. I am the executive supervisor of the Eurovision Song Contest. You are listening to Eurotrip.
3: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Eurotrip, the world's favorite Eurovision podcast. Just with me today, last week James of course brought you that brilliant bonus episode with Fazla talking all things Bosnia's participation, that historic first ever appearance at the Eurovision Song Contest back in 1993. Well today it is my turn to bring you a very special bonus episode. Now you might remember on Wednesday's podcast we were talking about the Eurovision Song Contest of 2020, the cancelled contest and of course then the following year when eurovision returned to rotterdam in 2021 well on rewind we couldn't have done that without the executive producer of the eurovision song contest back then he seats a you i'm sure will know his name he is a man who has been heavily involved with the eurovision song contest for many many years he actually started out with esc today you know the eurovision news website that's how he started he then worked on many, many contests going forward from that and then eventually becoming the executive producer for the 2020 and 2021 European Song Contests. And I should add, he's also on the reference group. So there was tons for us to talk about when we sat down to have a conversation and Rewind did not do it justice, basically. We didn't have time to bring you all of the brilliant things that Seats told me about. So you're going to hear all about a hastily arranged opening ceremony. You're going to hear all about what happened when they decided on Rotterdam over some of the other potential cities in the Netherlands, why Amsterdam wasn't considered as a host city and loads of other incredible personal stories about what it was like putting on the contest during the pandemic and eventually it coming to our TV screens in May 2021. So let's get on with it then. You're listening on Acast and Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This is the Eurotrip. I realise we've got this far and I haven't actually said who I am yet. I said I'm not James because James was here with you last week. I'm hoping you'll know who I am by now. It is Rob here. I hope you're doing okay. Thank you for tuning in for this bonus episode. I promise that chat that I had with Sitsa full length, feature length chat. It's a chunky one so make sure you make yourself comfortable when you're having to listen to this or hopefully you've got a long drive ahead of you because it's a long old chat but it is definitely worth it. But uh, yeah brilliant to be able to bring in that conversation today and thank you to all of you who of course tuned in on Wednesday. Big episode this week of course as well as Rewind 2020-2021 we were also chatting Melody Festival and Gossip weren't we with Toby Eck from Afton Bladit and we also had a bit of a chat about the changing voting rules for Eurovision starting in 2023. Some fascinating things have come out of that, by the way. Loads of brilliant people, far cleverer than me, have been able to kind of put together, oh, this is what the scoreboard would have been and this is who would have qualified if that new voting system had been in place in a certain year. I did see some brilliant maths over on the ESC Discord Twitter Uh, Their unofficial statistician, I think they referred to him as, uh, managed to work out that I think Sweden wouldn't have qualified for the grand final in 2021 had the rest of the world vote taken place back then as it will do next year. So some fascinating stuff in there. Definitely go and check that out over on Twitter. And some very exciting news since we last spoke, or at least I was with you on Wednesday. You may know, especially... Anyone listening to this who's in the United Kingdom, we have a very special kind of New Year's Eve show on the BBC, where a big musical artist does loads of their hits and there's a nice audience and it's all a a lovely sort of celebratory feel as we come to the end of the year. Well, I've only gone and got tickets, haven't I? So I'm going to see Sam Ryder's New Year's Eve show, which I'm very, very excited about.
1: When you aren't listening, find us on social media. At EuroTour Podcast on Twitter
3: and Instagram. But I promised I wouldn't keep you waiting. So come on then, let's do it. We are gonna get into this chat between me and the executive producer of the Eurovision Song Contest in 2020, and then of course, subsequently, 2021. This is Bakker. I mentioned in the opener, he has been a huge member of the Eurovision community for many years, starting way back as a fan when he helped set up. ESC Today of course, that brilliant news website and then he went on to work on many other contests in various different roles, some junior contests as well and then of course he took on the role of exec producer in 2020 and 2021. As part of the chat actually he will talk about what it was like when Duncan Lawrence won the contest for the Netherlands in 2019. He was out there in Tel Aviv, he tells a very funny story about the plane journey home and I think part of the green room or and part of the staging that ended up on that plane on the way back to the Netherlands. That's just one of the brilliant stories. He then talks about the decision-making process for where would go on to host Eurovision in 2020. He goes on to talk about a very hastily arranged opening ceremony when Eurovision eventually did take place the following year. And there's some fascinating stuff here about what it was like organising the contest in the pandemic, and then what it was actually like on the ground in Rotterdam, for that Eurovision Fortnite and just how he felt being able to put on that show. And you heard a bit of it on Rewind on Wednesday, but an incredible story about how Cicca was feeling when we had that iconic nil pois voting sequence when four countries got nil from the televote. So that is on the way as well. But let's get to it. And before we do... Please, please, please let me know what you think of this. At Eurotrip Podcast, Twitter and Instagram. Send us an email, hello at eurotrippodcast.com, if you so wish. But here's my chat with the brilliant of Vacker. so let's go way back. I say way back. We're not going way, way back. We're going back to Duncan Lawrence wins the contest in Tel Aviv. Where are you at that point? Do you remember that evening?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I was backstage and uh, and obviously very excited because uh, I knew that my own country would uh, would stand a chance of winning, which which hadn't been the case during my lifetime. Um, so I was really uh, uh, really fired up. But you know, we've we've all been there. Things can happen, and uh, and it was indeed very exciting because uh, uh, Netherlands didn't win the uh, the uh, the jury vote, and then also didn't win the televote but due to the the mix of things ended up winning uh the song contest i was called actually by npo a few weeks prior to that uh, because they saw the possibility of winning uh appearing at the horizon and they wanted to be prepared which actually a lot of broadcasters do if they see that that victory is looming they uh they try to be prepared send a small team to the song contest to look around and and uh, and pick up some learnings because you have only one year and, and it's a very short year. So any knowledge you can pick up there is uh, is useful. So so I was there and um, uh, I knew that I would have a uh, uh, an important responsibility if if we would win. So uh, that was certainly memorable. Talk talk to
3: us about that phone call. So you said that phone call came through a few weeks before. I mean, what are you doing when you get the phone call? And what 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 was in the phone call? What did they what did they say? No.
2: Yeah, well, I think it was it was actually uh, uh, somewhere late April, and um, and I, I remember the, the phone number appearing on my screen and thinking, okay, here we go. Uh, wherever this ends, this is the beginning, and uh, and at that point they said, you know, would you be available to to help to support? I didn't really know at the time when the call came what my responsibility would uh, would be. That became uh, obviously more clear over time. Um, and then I had a, a brief meeting in um, in Tel Aviv with uh, uh, with our director of television uh, to go through sort of also telling him a bit about what happens if you if you win and what do the first days and weeks uh, look like, which was knowledge that I I retained from my time at the EBU. So um, uh, so I think we were we were pretty well prepared. Uh, then again, if you actually do win and do get to host it, you realize that you have so much to learn uh, and that indeed one year is a very short time. And and as such, obviously,
3: like you say, you've already had that phone call. You you are already sort of primed and ready when Duncan does win the contest in Tel Aviv. Just how quickly do things escalate for <laughs> for the broadcaster, for you? So Saturday yeah. night happens, Duncan wins, yeah.
2: go. What happens yeah. next? Well, actually, I remember everyone around me was uh, was uh, was going nuts, absolutely bananas. Uh, it's the kind of response you see, you know, you're used to seeing others having that response, and suddenly you're in that position of actually winning, and uh, and I, I I just turned me very humble, very calm, very uh, stoic, almost. <laughs> because i realized you know what winning means and you know it's great for the artist great for the delegation uh it's great for the country a lot of positive energy uh but it also comes with a big responsibility that makes the song contest unique that you you host it when you when you win it uh and knowing what that responsibility entails uh just you know made me uh a bit quiet for a moment uh, and then obviously there was a big party and uh I remember on the flight back the the next day, everyone was um, obviously very tired because, you know, people had no sleep or just one or two hours of sleep. Uh, But I remember the first ideas for what would be Eurovision 2020 were already put on paper on the plane, people scribbling down uh, their notes. I remember uh, our assistant head of delegation uh, coming into the plane. I think it was the last one to board the plane with a big... Um, a big brown box, uh, which I later found out actually contained the the light bulb that came down from the ceiling. Um, so uh, so that came back with us uh, to the Netherlands. Uh, big uh, reception at the at the airport, and then the next day on Monday, actually, we we went to work and uh, we we started right away with a small team in a in a tiny office space, uh, preparing for what was to come.
3: And what are those? first jobs what are those first responsibilities you know on that that monday and in that sort of first few weeks after winning the contest yeah. especially in your role as the executive producer of the contest did you know at that time you were going to be executive producer and, and what are you doing at that
2: time no i think uh, we were with a a small group of um i think four or five people and at that time it was clear we would all have a a a pretty big responsibility um, when we gathered, I think the first things we we did was to 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 sort of clarify how are we going to work together? What are the, the fundaments of how we're going to work together? And what are the first steps that we have to take? Now, obviously, you need to have clarity on what is what is expected from you as a host broadcaster. That is all packaged in the host broadcaster agreement, which you get from the EBU. Uh, then you have to start thinking about finding a host city and compiling a request for proposal because, you know, cities are already banging your door, uh, asking if they could host a song contest. They want to know what comes with that responsibility. So you want to provide them with all that information. So we started packaging that. And then obviously you want to do this, uh, this fantastic uh, a TV show and event. You want to do that with the best people that you have in your country. And usually, you know, good people have uh, have pretty busy agenda. So we we started calling around to see who will who would be available, and uh, and create sort of the 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 fundamentals of a, an organogram. How are we going to to put together the team and who could fill all these positions that we uh, need to fill? I call it a startup on steroids because it's really you start from nothing, and you have to you know you you don't really have much time. You have a year, and then and then um, and then it happens so um uh so yeah we were pretty much on steroids these days and uh, uh got things together very uh, very quickly but we started on day 1 we didn't stop you you mentioned you know already at that stage you had sort of
3: potential host cities you know sort of banging on your door saying what do we have to do what what happens just illustrate for us how much interest there was in the netherlands from cities across the country to host the, the song contest
2: yeah, there was a lot. I think it's it started out with 8 or 9 different cities. Uh some usual suspects, some surprises as well. Um then we put together that document and we sent it around uh, uh you know, within within a few short weeks actually. Um then a few cities realized that this was uh, too big of a responsibility to take on and we ended up with five cities putting together serious bids and It was it was it was sort of very interesting to observe that the interest in all those cities and the competitiveness was was enormous. The energy was was great. And uh, we thought, okay, we'll just ask the cities to put together uh, sort of a bid book, all the information in a in a in a package that we can actually compare them. And uh, they just send it to us um, uh, by mail, and then we'll look through it. And then the first city came; I think it was Maastricht that said we want to come to you and sort of hand it over personally. And we said, okay, that's yeah, sure, that's fine. And they said, oh, we'll come with a bus, and we'll bring a, bring a we'll bring a brass band, and and they wanted to turn this into a a media fest. And when other cities uh, got word of that, they said, okay, if if they come and hand it in, then we want to come handed in too so before we knew it we had a huge reception at the at the office with uh, with uh, dozens of journalists uh with our director general uh with you know light sound backdrops cameras uh it was really uh, it was really madness that day uh, and then the next day the media uh or some journalists are to blame us for, um uh for turning this into uh into uh, such a, a big thing while well, it was actually not such a big thing at all it was just handing in the bid books but uh, i had to remind them that this was not our request it was actually the request of the of the cities and they all uh, did their very best to uh, uh, to present themselves and uh, and that was really that was really heartwarming to see
3: i'm interested in the role that that amsterdam played in everything that you've just mentioned there because understandably of course the minute Duncan wins Eurovision fans people watching immediately go oh Amsterdam it'll be in Amsterdam. Netta doing
2: her famous uh, prediction. (laughs) I mean Netta needs
3: to stop stop predicting where (laughs) Eurovision is going to be the following year but of course she said on stage see you in Amsterdam. Yeah. Obviously obviously Amsterdam were not one of the the main contenders to host the contest in the end but what sure. discussions did do you have? Were the discussions with Amsterdam about whether or not they could? Did they come to you? What? How did that work?
2: Well, I'm I'm not going into the details of all the the discussions we had with the different cities, but let me just say in general that obviously in 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 this particular case, you know, Amsterdam is a is a very busy, crowded city, uh, lots of events going on, especially at the time. We have to uh, remind ourselves this was pre-COVID. Uh, Amsterdam had a a bit of a challenge when it comes to tourism and the amount of people visiting the city every year and and how that affects the the ability to live and work for for its citizens. Uh, so that was a big discussion. And then obviously you need a venue. And I think in Amsterdam we we only have one serious concert venue, which is the Zigodome, which was already uh, uh, you know they had a packed schedule for the. For May and or April and May 2020, um, um, you know, hotels pretty much fully booked. So it would be very challenging for for Amsterdam to uh, to put together a a bid. Now, obviously, we were blessed with uh, with five great bids and and ultimately two very competitive proposals from um, uh, Maastricht and Rotterdam. So ultimately, we were very happy. Amsterdam already hosted the contest, so. Uh, for us, it was also great to to go to, uh, to another city and give another city the chance uh, of feeling that Eurovision vibe. You said there, you know, we remember it came down to, it was
3: a bit similar to 2023 in terms of, we knew that it was going to be between two cities, I think at that point, you know, you decided yeah. you were going to say it'll be Maastricht or Rotterdam. And then we had, of course, the reveal. It ended up in Rotterdam. But just how impressed were you from both, cities bids and like you say I know you can't talk specifics but they're both very different cities Mm. I've I've been to Maastricht before both different candidates and both offering offering different things as host cities
2: absolutely no Rotterdam obviously has the benefit of you know being a big city uh with lots of hotels uh, near vicinity of the venue a great venue that was you know pretty much made for events like the Eurovision Song Contest with uh, with a big arena and then um, several uh, venues around it connected uh, internally where you can do you know press center and delegation bubble and crew catering all the facilities and offices that you need space for ob compound outside Um, they also had very appealing ideas about how they wanted to involve the the citizens of their city Uh, and it was financially a very interesting bit then what made Maastricht so competitive was that their uh, proposition, their ideas of doing this sort of in what they say is the heart of Europe, uh, where the Maastricht Treaty was uh, uh, was signed, um, uh, very approachable from from Belgium, from France, from Germany, uh, and indeed from uh, from the Netherlands, uh, a, a much more intimate setting, a small town that you can really sort of take over as a as a big event. Uh, and financially, a very strong uh, proposal uh, as well. I think Rotterdam and Maastricht were at least financially two of the, uh, the 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 best proposals we've ever seen at the at the Eurovision Song Contest. Uh, so that was really unheard of. Their challenge was with the venue, which was uh, which had a pretty low uh, ceiling, also beneficial with several halls around it that you could sort of connect internally for all these facilities I just mentioned. But um, but they 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 couldn't get their act together in terms of the uh, in terms of the venue. And ultimately, you know, if you boil it down to to the core essence, it's this is a a TV production and and that's what you need. So that's why ultimately we went for Rotterdam.
3: You went for Rotterdam. What was it like telling Rotterdam that they would be hosting the original song contest in 2020 at the time? What was it like? I don't know. Did you make that phone call? What was that moment like?
2: It was a very surreal moment. Um, I would almost say it was a, a bit of an out-of-body experience because I was in a very dull uh, uh, meeting room uh, with the, the clock behind me. And in front of me um, uh, were uh, cameras, photographers, um, uh, our director general, Yonel Assant, was there. Uh, several people from the team and I just sat there behind the table, as if I were giving a press conference uh, with my phone. And then I had to call them, um, knowing that you know, in both cities, everyone is hoping for a positive outcome, and you know that that you're going to make one very happy, and you're going to share the dreams of uh, of another, which is. Uh, Um, both it's a it's an odd mix between excitement and sadness as well because uh, everyone did their very best and then you have to make those phone calls i I first call um, uh, maastricht because i i didn't want to end up in a situation where we would first call rotterdam and then maastricht would somehow hear it from someone else than from us um there were two very short phone calls and uh, we were going to uh, release it half an hour later on, uh, on national television. And that's exactly what we did. I think it's probably striking
3: for people listening to realize quite how soon those you know how, how little time there was between that phone call and then actually it being announced to the to the world. I think thats that's fascinating.
2: Well our concern was obviously that it would leak uh, and that uh, uh, and that our sort of announcement moment would go down the drain. Um, it didn't go down the drain but it did leak actually seven minutes before because a because the uh, the CEO of the venue in Maastricht stormed out of the office of the mayor uh, uh in disappointment which is understandable uh and then in the hallway uh, met a journalist who obviously um you know one- on-one is two uh and 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 released that news so we were Actually, in the in the uh, the main control room of Dutch television, where they would launch uh, the uh, the announcement video at noon, and suddenly all our phones start buzzing and lighting up and uh, with push messages from the various media outlets that it uh, it would be Rotterdam. But that was sort of seven minutes uh, uh, before twelve, so uh, uh, I think we had a good laugh about that.
3: Yeah, I feel like seven minutes isn't too bad. It could have been uh, could have been, been too worse. bad at all. Could have no. been worse. Uh, See so I'm going to fast forward because we've got a lot to talk about if if we fast forward to the 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 elephant in the room i suppose which is you know you plan for a contest in 2020 and a contest doesn't happen in 2020 at which at what stage do you begin to have discussions that this genuinely might not happen yeah,
2: yeah. i th- i think i w- i was following the new- this news from asia from what was happening there with this mysterious illness that people were starting to have I think already in December early January um not thinking too much and certainly not thinking about the the you know the scenario that would eventually play it out I think no one did uh really at least in the in the in the Western world um I think it was late January that I first texted um our counterpart in Rotterdam and said you know this virus and you know seeing that it's coming to uh, to europe maybe we have to start planning for something and, and at least talk to the the health authorities about this so could we set up something with the uh, the national health service here in the netherlands could we ask the ebu to contact the world health organization to to see what kind of information they can get and then think of scenarios that could play out and that we could um anticipate on uh, to ensure, you know, first of all, people's health, and then obviously the continuity of uh, of the song contest. What I had sort of in mind that I've, I've been saying for for many years, because you know, there's there are sometimes issues in in host countries saying, you know, Eurovision always happens and no matter what, you know, we'll will make it happen. Um, little did we know that that within uh, uh, what was it six eight weeks uh, we would actually. End up uh, uh, not having a Eurovision Song Contest, which was um, which was tough. But that first moment was was in late January, and then obviously things started to evolve, evolve very quickly in in February, uh, early March. We would start recording postcards in the Netherlands, so we would fly in the artists from their country to the Netherlands, and then we got a cancellation I think first from Italy where obviously COVID hit really bad uh, in one of the first countries in Europe then Poland pulled out and then you know every day we would get two or three countries that said we we cannot travel or we are not not allowed to travel by company policy Um, and and then we start to realize that that this could actually uh, uh, endanger the continuity of what we were what we were planning for then we had reference group meeting in the days before the uh, head of delegation meeting in, in mid-march the head of delegation meeting we already turned into a, a hybrid meeting so we had about two-thirds of heads of delegation coming to rotterdam and for the others we set up a, uh, a web stream uh, something we are now sort of used to doing uh, but at the time was um, uh, required a bit of improvising uh, but nevertheless we we did it and And at that meeting, that reference meeting, we obviously discussed, you know, the potential scenarios and the situation, but it didn't, it didn't really, um, it didn't really become clear until I think it was one or two days after the meeting. Um, I think all of us were very focused on, you know, preparing that meeting and getting things right and leaving a good impression with, with all the participating broadcasters. And then when you sort of go back home and you start listening to the news and read the papers and you're you're watching television, then it dawned upon us that that this could be um, uh, that this could actually end. And then I think it was somewhere between the Olympics and uh, and uh, Euro football that uh, that Eurovision was um, cancelled as well. Was
3: there a a phone call between yourself and Jonas Sand? I, I was the you know obviously you're working incredibly closely with them it's a decision that you presumably both um took together i'm assuming how did that actually no no
2: it's it's actually um the interestingly enough we realized that because of the way that things are that the eurovision song contest is organized we as a host broadcaster did not have a mandate to cancel the song contest that mandate was only with the with the EBU so that decision had to be taken by the EBU i think it was an inevitable uh, decision we supported the decision but they had to make the decision um and i think they did that at the uh, at the highest level um and that obviously took a bit of time as well and then i think the um uh, the phone call came i think i was at the director general's office when when our director general and the director general of the EBU Spoke about this uh, and the decision to uh, to cancel, and I think I think it was uh, the next day that we uh, it could be the same day, early in the morning or or the day before that we had that call, uh, but we had very short time to uh, to make that announcement. First of all, to you know the the public, but also to uh, the participating broadcasters and their artists that were all preparing for their three minutes of uh, uh, of fame. Uh, um, and on in the last place obviously our team uh, you know 80 people uh, in-house as well as all the suppliers the city of Rotterdam informed them that uh, they, they, that it, it ended right there which was tough obviously.
3: Well this is what I was going to say Now, how difficult was it to, to I suppose to pick yourself back up and for you and, and your team to do you, I suppose go again in those initial days I suppose you didn't necessarily know when or if you would go again and or how did how did that work what was that timeline yeah. like
2: well your son said something very wise he said it's um it's difficult to start organizing a Eurovision song contest but it's probably more difficult to end it because it has never been done what there's no um scenario uh, or document that describes, you know, what do we do if we have to cancel a song contest? Uh, so we had to, we had to think of everything that comes with it. You know, from who do you inform in which order? Uh, what can you say about you know the year after? Are you going to host it again? Um, uh, what, what does this mean? Uh, what does it mean for insurance? What does it mean financially? Uh, what can we say about next year? I mean, especially at the time. Remember, this was March twenty twenty, and and the world looked very uncertain at the time. So no one knew what um, what May twenty twenty one was going to look like, and uh, and ha- how the world would would evolve and how the virus would evolve. So it was um, it was a very challenging uh, period of time, and I think that was one of the oddly enough maybe. Uh, was one of the reasons we said, okay, let's try to do an alternative show on um, on the sixteenth of May. Uh, not only to mark the moment, but also because it 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 was a it was something positive for our team to focus on.
3: Can we go to the spring of twenty twenty one because we know the contest is happening, but we still don't know what form the contest will take. Now I remember. I mean, you can tell me, of course, when it was that you announced the contest would either be scenario A, scenario B, scenario C, I think, was there even a scenario D? I can't quite remember, but there was a scenario D. How much of your time was spent over those scenarios and what you can and can't do for Eurovision? And and just how difficult was it to think that Eurovision would would look very different in
2: 2021? Yeah, I think 100% of my time went into the scenarios and then another 100% uh, into everything else um I think it was late january that we that we had a, a pretty good sense of where things were going obviously still with you know some major reservations because we we had seen that things could could change quite rapidly you know with with variants of the virus uh spreading pretty quickly uh vaccine rollout uh not going as fast as everyone hoped and then I think we, I th- uh, correct me if, if I'm wrong, I think it was in February that we, that we actually sort of sealed our faith and said, you know, this is the scenario we're going for. Now, obviously, you know, making that choice is one thing. Um, then, you know, making sure that all the delegations felt comfortable with that uh, was another. I think we never had so many meetings with um, uh, we actually had several heads of delegation meeting during that year. Normally you only have one in March and I think we had one every month where we would update delegations uh, on where we stood, what the situation were, how the situation was evolving but also to get a, a sense of what they felt like whether they were comfortable with that scenario and I remember several delegations at the time thinking uh this is not going to happen. It's going to be cancelled again. Uh, you'll never be able to pull it off. And uh, and and I'm very happy we we proved them wrong. Actually, with their support, because everyone was incredibly supportive. Um, uh, nearly everyone, you know, very strict on following the rules. And uh, and it 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 wasn't um if it wasn't for for them and their support and their. Uh, commitment to the strict guidelines we uh, we had, uh, we would have never been able to uh, to make it.
3: What was the moment like when you first set foot? Obviously, I know you were, you were in Rotterdam, of course, a lot in the lead up to the contest. But what was it like when you finally set foot in the Ahoy and you have that moment of realization that actually this is going to happen and you can see it taking place. Like, you know, it's physically being built. Mm. It's definitely going to happen. It's like an emotional moment for
2: you? As you, as you asked your question, there were sort of three moments that flashed through my mind. First of all, I think it was two weeks or before the decision had to be taken. Are we allowed to have an audience or not? I was, I think it was the only one in the office. Um and I it was very close to the arena. So I, I walked over there and they were doing some light adjustments. But there were very few people and I I I sat down in one of the chairs and I looked around and I I think I think I, I spoke out loud. I said it th- this place cannot be empty for those three shows. So, you know, even though I'm I'm pretty down to earth, I, I sort of tried to manifest, you know, people in those chairs and try to hear the the excitement of the crowd. I try to see the 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 flags waving and 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 you know. Um, then I think the second moment where where I really realized that you know we 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 may be able to pull it off was when the king uh, uh, paid us a visit. Very gracious. Um, he 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 came. We gave him a tour, and I remember at some point together with with some of my colleagues, I walked onto the stage with the king to sort of explain, you know, what how the stage uh, works and how the changeover worked during the postcards. And somebody said, oh, you, uh, your majesty, I, I just realized that as we walk here, it's, it's not only for you the first time on the Eurovision stage, but <laughs> also for me. Uh, this is the first time I'm walking on, on this uh, stage. So, uh, um, and, and then to do it with you, uh, is uh, is a great honor and uh, uh, and obviously a very memorable memorable moment. And then the third time was when we did the first show with audience on um, uh, on Monday night, the the jury show for the first semifinal. And I remember walking with the CEO of of Ahoy. We walked through to the doors, and you could already hear the 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 noise in the background and we opened the doors and we we walked in and and there was an audience and that was emotional for me it was emotional for her as well because she she hadn't seen an audience in that venue for a long time and we both cried uh here i said it and we both cried and uh, when we looked around to other people from uh, from the crew walking around there working in the green room every single one was crying uh, it was a very emotional moment, and um, and also one of those moments I will never forget.
3: There are still some some difficult moments to come, aren't there? Even even at that stage, because people will remember, and you've already mentioned it earlier on. We had the positive cases with with Iceland, of course, and and Iceland at that time, I think, were one of the potential favourites to go on to win the contest. So. Yeah an incredibly difficult situation for you all to manage. I seem to remember that that positive case came through, or at least the communication came through on the Sunday, I think just before the opening ceremony. And there was a lot of varying sort of discussion about what may, may not mm-hmm. happen with the opening ceremony, even with the rest of the contest at that point. Yep. What what was that like for you to, to get notification of, Oh, you know, one of yep. the favorites for the contest has tested positive. It, it's almost, I'm guessing your worst nightmare at that stage.
2: Yeah, we 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 actually managed quite a few weeks without any as internal cases as we called it, you know, we had people coming from outside coming to the venue for the first time to work and then t- test positive without realizing it. Um but we never had internal cases up to uh up to the point I think we had a, a case in the Icelandic delegation and then one in the Polish delegation. Um, and then on the Sunday, we said, "Okay, everyone will also be have to be tested for the opening ceremony because that's a moment where you put, you know, you, even though it's outside, you put quite a lot of people together. You're moving them, and it's it's one of the very um, sensitive moments. So so short before the show, so we should really be, um, you know, cautious there. Then." Then I think if I recall correctly, there was another case in the Icelandic delegation and then um, that was I think Poland and Iceland were in the same hotel. Uh, When other delegations then started to hear about this in the same hotel, um, there was speculation that oh maybe there is something wrong with the hotel. Then other delegations start contacting us and say, oh, we want to you know we don't want to be in this hotel anymore because it's a risky place can you move us to another hotel now obviously the uh, the worst thing you can do in a situation like that is start moving people around to other hotels uh, so um, uh, so so we had to talk them out of that idea uh, and then there were concerns from delegations for going to the uh, to the uh, the opening ceremony to begin with so that was a bit of a, a crisis i was already you know, I was dressed up in my suit and tie, ready to go there. When I said, you know, I I I cannot manage uh, this situation while standing there, you know, with the mayor and Martinez Estadal and 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 my colleague on the carpet. So I'll I'll set up shop in the uh, uh, in our crew hotel and have a little crisis room there and uh, start making calls and making adjustments to the program to not only secure the uh, the health and safety of everyone attending, but also to uh, to calm the waters and to show people that we were taking their concerns seriously. So instead of all the delegations coming to two boats that we had there and then um, uh, getting them over to the other side of the of the river where the the carpet was, uh, instead we we said okay, let's drive them directly to the carpet. Uh, which required a change in, you know, the routing logistics. We had to, to, to. I think we had to clear the bridge of audience. We had to uh, do a bomb check. We had to uh, make changes to the security protocol. All the food that was ready and waiting uh, on those boats uh, had to be packaged so that we could give it to the, to the, to the artists after they finished the carpet, so they would have something to eat at least afterwards. Uh, and I think we had to we had to redo that entire operation in 90 minutes. And the crew on site did a spectacular job uh, getting all that ready, um, um, you know, without creating any hassle for either the, the press or the delegations without jeopardizing the, uh, the live stream. And, uh, and ultimately it went uh, quite well, but uh, uh, not without a headache. And, uh, and I think it was the only sleepless night I had was from Sunday to Monday thinking like, okay, we now had, you know, another case in the Icelandic delegation, we have a, ca- a case in the Polish delegation. Um, you know, is this the beginning of the end? Or are we going to be able to contain this? And that was, um, that was, uh, that was probably the, the toughest day of all.
3: Take us to Monday then, because you said Monday, by the time we got to Monday night, yeah. <laughs> things 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 were yeah. looking better. You were you were having an understandable yeah. cry with the CEO of of, <laughs> of Ahoy. Yeah. How do things progress on that on that Monday that mean that you are in a position where you feel more comfortable and more confident about the yeah. show at that
2: stage? Well, obviously, you know, main priority was keep everyone healthy. Every morning I would get updates from our test pavilion whether there were any positive cases amongst the crew and um and i th- i think there were there were no I th- there were a few again from coming from the outside but there was no internal uh, spread at the time so that gave me the confidence that this was you know manageable um, in terms of numbers of cases, we were still way below the national average. Um, uh, we had no outbreaks of any kind. So at that point, um, I, I was confident we would pull through the first semifinal. So we sort of really took it by the day. Okay, now we can do Monday. We can do Tuesday. And then, you know, let's get that over with and, uh, and then take it from there. So we really lived by the day. And I think that moment, uh, uh, walking into the arena, having an audience there, uh, was uh, what is, was a bit of the of relief from the, uh, the 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 days prior, and then
3: we get to Saturday. We get to the day that you've been looking ahead to for two years. At that stage, that presumably you said you had a cry on the Monday. You must have had a cry on the Saturday. Seats, assured.
2: Um not really a cry. I had a little tear maybe during. You know, I, I, Saturday, and everyone who's ever been involved with organizing Eurovision knows this. Saturday is a very weird day because you still have to deliver sort of the the cherry on the cake, which is the grand final. So the biggest job is still ahead. You know that in a day it's all over. And then you're just waiting. So... Saturday is just waiting. Uh, every, everything's ready. There's very little you can change or adjust. And you just wait. Um, so that's exactly what we did. We just, we just waited. Uh, then rolling into the show, it, it all goes very quickly. Uh, it's over just like that. Um, and I remember, you know, we had all the songs. I think the voting window was... Already closed, and we had the uh, and everything went well with augmented, which was a. We had a, a few technical issues with that during one of the rehearsals, so that was a, a relief that that went very well, and um, and then that w- we started to get to that moment where we would have to roll the tape on Duncan Lawrence because he he tested positive for COVID, and um, and together with his amazing team, we managed to put together. Uh, uh you know the augmented reality and the recording from the rehearsal into a way that 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 just appeared live and i wanted to i was curious whether rolling the tape would affect the energy in the arena and the pl- the, the location where i was sitting was very close to the arena so i said you know i'll i'll briefly walk into the arena while we roll that tape um, just to get a, a bit of a, a a feel for what's going on. So I walk in there. The atmosphere was amazing., uh, uh, it, it was it was absolutely fantastic. It was almost like he was he was there a uh, 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 present and uh, and that was really touching. And it wasn't until I looked to my side and saw one of the show producers that was actually responsible for that act. Sort of having the same kind of uh, um, experience, the same kind of emotion, and when we when our our uh, when when we we crossed eyes, we we started crying because, or we shed a, shed a tear because it was uh, it was such an emotional moment. And then we went back to work because we still had the big thing going on with the voting, and uh, uh, and had to had to get through that. You mentioned the
3: voting. Obviously, I want to talk to you about your emotions after the show in a second. But you mentioned the voting—one of, safe to say, the most iconic moments of the entire history of the Eurovision Song Contest—when those four countries get nil point from yeah. uh, from the telly vote, <laughs> which is nothing yeah. you can, which is nothing you can ever pl- plan no. for, Caesar. Uh, what was that like? Just being there for that moment and holding the position you do. As executive producer when that
2: happens well you know uh, as the fans know sometimes you see it coming um and in this case i think you know the first one i think i think we sort of saw that coming you always hope it doesn't because you know even one or two points it's better than having no points at all and being called out for it which um which is is uh is, is it's a bit it's a bit painful um and then the second one comes in, like, oh, wow, okay. Now, surely we would, you know, start handing out points. And then the third one. And that's the moment where I start to think something wrong. And I see on the screen, I see Chantal, one of the hosts, I see she made a sort of a face. And I thought, you're thinking the same as I'm thinking. There is something wrong with the, with the voting and any moment we're going to have martin astadal interfere and say this is this is not right and we're starting over again and that was the moment i thought shall i now you know we have this big sort of radio panels and there's all there's buttons and panic buttons and you can easily talk to each other at that point i i thought shall i call martin now and ask him is there a problem then i thought if there is a problem he's probably very busy with that and he would tell me you know as soon as he can so let's let's wait for one more country and then there's another there's another zero points and i think i i think i called him or the 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 televoting supervisor from digame uh and and was uh, was comforted that you know points would be coming uh but that this was just a uh Rather historic moment indeed. Obviously, it's a bit sad, you know, hosting the song contest and 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 also being awarded zero points. But um, yeah, know, if you can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen. That's uh, that's part of the contest. I think all the contestants took it took it very professionally, and uh, especially the moment when when the the, the UK singer uh, uh, you know threw his beer up in the air and and when they had this little moment with the uh, the German singer. I think that was just, uh, uh, that was great television as well. So, uh, you know, in the end, I think everyone took it uh, very professionally.
3: Looking, of course, at the other end of the scoreboard, your time as executive producer of the Eurovision Song Contest in 2021 ends with an Italian victory at the Eurovision Song Contest, something that we, we hadn't seen for an awful long time. What was it like seeing... Maneskin and seeing a group like Maniskin I suppose win I'm, I'm not going to call it your contest because you would never call mm-hmm. it your contest but you know the, the contest that you'd been part of for so long what what was that like and then also I suppose going on to see what Maniskin have done since
2: yeah well I think to to put that in context we have to go back to 2011 when Jonal son joined us executive supervisor and i joined as event supervisor uh sort of being his right hand as well uh supporting him and and i remember very vividly one of our first sort of ambitions was to to bring back italy and you know conversations were already underway um uh, but you know these conversations had taken place before unsuccessfully and and uh, we we he and, and some others uh, put in a lot of energy into that, brought back Italy. And uh, and to sort of, you know, not having Gianola there in 2021, which was very sad uh, uh, for him, uh, but then to have Italy win sort of felt like a full circle moment. Um, uh, also to see you know, this song that has great potential, this group that has a lot of appeal on TikTok, um, you know, appealing to a younger generation. I had a, a bit of the same feeling I had when Lorreen won, uh, when you realize, you know, this is this is going to be a hit. And, uh, and and the Eurovision Song Contest for many years was criticized for, you know, it's not really, it's not relevant when it comes to, you know, how the music uh, industry develops. And I felt that you know, we were back there again, where Eurovision is not only right there where the music industry is, but could actually have a could take the lead in that even, and uh, and and has so much more potential. And you see that now with interest from from the uh, from the United States uh, over the past decade, the interest from Australia, the viewing numbers on YouTube, on TikTok. I mean, it's all going through the roof, and I couldn't be more proud to to see your vision where it is today. Uh, Very excited where it's going in the, uh, in the years to come and, uh, and very grateful that I've been able to, uh, to make a small contribution to that.
3: Is there a symbolic moment at the end of that Saturday night? Man's kind of won the the credits have rolled. Is is there a symbolic moment of you turning off the light in your office and, and making your way home? Because I remember having a conversation with, Dave Goodman from the European Broadcasting Union and he said that it was a very strange moment because I think they ended up having some sandwiches on a park bench in Rotterdam at about five in the morning because of course there's nowhere to go because you're still in a pandemic and there's no way to celebrate.
2: Yeah, I remember the two moments, well lots of memories, but two moments in particular one is um, that obviously at the end of of the show uh, and we don't really want to remember that night for that incident, but there was this speculation about, you know, the table. <laughs> and um, and I recall actually seeing that on Twitter and someone, you know, taking a, a clip of that and speculating what he was doing. When I saw that, I sort of dismissed it because I thought, I know those tables and I know those, you know, big um, bowls with ice and, Bottles stuck into it, and I knew that because the 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 bowl was so big, it would not be physically possible to put something on the table, um, let alone what he was accused of. Uh, so I sort of dismissed it. This is not possible. Then it became a big thing, and I remember saying to my colleague, "We did thirty thousand COVID tests over the last weeks." is this now all going to come down to a cocaine test? That was a very surreal moment. Um, what was also surreal is coming to the office, obviously uh, proud, relieved, uh, hyped up, and then finding actually one of those on uh, my desk. Um, uh, but instead, it was actually not this one. But it for,
3: for the purposes of people listening, is the lampshade you've got. In your the,
2: it, yeah, indeed. And... Uh, well, I found the, the lampshade uh, of the Italian uh, delegation on my desk with a note from my colleagues that this was their gift to me uh, for, for steering the ship. And uh, and that made me enormously proud. It has a very special place uh, uh, in my home. Uh, and for the rest of my life, whoever comes across that lamp and doesn't know its story, I have to explain uh, the relevance of that lampshade uh, coming from the green room of the 2021 Eurovision Song Contest um, uh, in the colors of the Italian flag.
3: Before we before we finish this conversation, do you have any advice for, for the BBC and your colleagues that will be doing the same job that you did for, for the 2023 Eurovision Song Contest? Of course, a unique Eurovision as yours was, but for, for different reasons
2: yeah well, um, lots of advice uh, and I've already given it to them. <laughs> and then it's up to them to see what they do with it because obviously they what they, their achievement, they have they have to put that song contest together under very different circumstances. Um, you know, starting pretty late, doing it together with uh, with Ukraine, also in a very challenging year for the BBC. They just had the the, the passing of Her Majesty the Queen, uh, then the funeral. Uh, then the coronation of king charles in uh, in may next year uh, so it's going to be a very busy day for our colleagues at the at the bbc i have to say um as as usual um the bbc has been very gracious in in um uh, in their approach also to to me and the and the 2021 team listening to uh, to advice absorbing all the the learnings that we um uh, that we learned in in Rotterdam um uh, because they are really ambitious to to make this an amazing Eurovision song contest i'm 100% sure they will do a fantastic job the the city of liverpool is really excited i think they find exactly the right tone of voice and the right uh, form of collaboration with our friends in uh, in ukraine and i'm i'm absolutely confident that they will Put together a Eurovision Song Contest that that does justice to that Ukrainian victory, that does justice to the situation in Europe. But despite the occasion being uh, a very sad one, uh, will also bring us again three nights of unforgettable uh, fun, great memories, and uh, and I can't wait to uh, to go there in May. I think listeners will be very
3: reassured that the BBC have already. Did the BBC reach out to you, or did you reach out to the BBC?
2: Uh, well, um, uh, Rachel, who is uh, who is one of the uh, the people in charge of, of Rachel your... Ashdown,
3: this is who she was on the reference group as well. She was on the
2: reference group, so we already knew each other uh, 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 from way back. Um, Andrew Cartmel, uh, working out of BBC Studios as head of delegation, uh, lots of experience. Um, um so, you know, he will do a fantastic job. Uh, Martin Green, uh, the managing director with his experience on, you know, the Olympics, the Commonwealth Games and all the other big TV productions that he's done. Uh, they're having a fantastic team. They're they're putting in long days and nights, but, uh, but with the right energy. And, uh, you know, the BBC can do this. Uh, they're probably one of the, if not the best broadcaster in the world. Uh, I know that a lot of people uh, have been, you know, um, critical towards the BBC for their approach to Eurovision, for their disappointing results. But I think they um, they uh, they got back to where they they should be, where they could be. Uh, I think Sam Ryer has been a fantastic ambassador for the song contest, uh, a great result. Now hosting the song contest, and I'm sure those will be. Uh, stepping stones, and uh, and I'm pretty sure that we will see a UK victory in the not uh, too distant future, uh, because I think they have everything it takes to uh, uh, to actually not only host it but to actually bring home that trophy uh, once again.
1: You're listening to the Euro Trip, your favorite Eurovision podcast. When you aren't listening, find us on social media at Eurotour Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Warming you up for the Eurovision Song Contest.
3: So there he was then, Sietze Backer there joining us. So grateful that he sat down with me for, honestly, ages, as you've just heard there, and talked us all through what it was like organising the contest in 2020 and then, of course, subsequently 2021. Everything in between and also towards the end there how he is helping advise the people at the BBC as they get organising Eurovision 2023. So brilliant he's able to share his expertise and of course he's also still on the reference group. So it is a shame I think I said on Wednesday that we had that chat before the new voting rules came through. Because of course he was part of the team that decided on those new rules and regulations but obviously I I didn't I I didn't I didn't know that was coming did I I'm not a time traveler so unfortunately couldn't ask him about that but thank you so much for having a listen and don't forget please 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 do let us know what you thought of it at your trip podcast on twitter and instagram and also send us an email hello at your trip podcast.com and if you did like what you heard and I can't express this enough please do leave us a review because it really helps loads of other people find the podcast so you can do that wherever you're listening Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you are please do leave us a rating and a review and I really really appreciate it in the meantime don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode and we will be back on Wednesday me and James will be here with another edition of the Euro Trip, our final edition of Rewind for the current series and also I'm sure loads of brilliant guests as well So thank you very much for listening, really appreciate it. Hope you enjoy your weekend or have enjoyed your weekend or are enjoying your weekend whenever you're choosing to listen to this. Thank you for joining me and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.